really need to scientifically define what is humane for each individual species. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Before we get into the show, I want to thank all of our wonderful Defender Radio patrons and welcome Tabitha as a new supporter and thank Julie for an incredible increase. Patrons support the show, help us maintain equipment, and are edging us closer to being able to provide transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing. Get more info at patreon.com defenderradio I'm also happy to announce our winner for the Defender Radio t-shirt giveaway this week is Lee from Whitehorse. A Defender Radio shirt is on its way to Lee, who won by a random draw as a subscriber to the Defender Radio e-newsletter. You can sign up for weekly updates at thefurbears.com updates. While we all love wildlife and want to coexist with the animals, sharing our bedrooms and walls with them isn't exactly ideal. Many species can cause significant electrical or structural damage to homes or businesses, putting everyone at risk. Some species do carry diseases that are harmful, particularly in locations like hospitals or restaurants. And if you're like me, having a squirrel scrabbling around in the vent causes the dogs to go absolutely insane. Safely and humanely removing wildlife is an important job that should often be left to experts. But who exactly are the experts, and what makes them humane operators, are long-standing questions. And now, the BC SPCA wants to help answer them. The BC SPCA launched Animal Kind last week, a program that will help residents and business owners find accredited wildlife removal or pest control companies who put humane treatment of animals first. Dr. Sarah Dubois, Chief Scientific Officer for the BC SPCA, joined Defender Radio to explain the need for Animal Kind, how it was developed, and why it will benefit people, businesses, and the animals. You can hear a five-minute edit of this interview in the news brief released earlier this week in your podcast feed. Why is there a need for this program? We'll get into what the program looks like, but let's talk what the need is to start. So humane wildlife control or humane pest control is a term that's thrown out there, but no one has really defined what it means. So different people have different versions of what humane is. And we're seeing in the marketplace a lot of confusion, and people are looking for an effective solution. Nobody wants to live with rats in their walls or raccoons in their attic, but they also don't want to harm the animals unnecessarily. So when a company is trying to sell you a service, they're often using the word humane. And we're seeing more and more news companies, but yet no one's verifying what that means. It's not a tr- you know a term that can be trademarked. It's just a general you know motherhood statement like eco-friendly. So I think that the public really needs some process, some some verification, some external body to vet these companies and really give them their stamp of approval so that they can be confident to know what humane actually is aligns with their values too. Excellent. And how did you develop or how did your team develop the Animal Kind program? It looks rather robust early on already. Well, absolutely. We've spent a lot of time researching this program, and specifically we teamed up with the UBC Animal Welfare Program to dive deeply into the scientific literature on animal welfare harms to every type of wild animal you could possibly imagine here out on the West Coast, at least. 
and to really explore what are going to be the effective solutions for dealing with conflicts with these animals. A lot of the times when people talk about humane solutions, they're thinking maybe it's not lethal or maybe the animal gets relocated and, and taken somewhere far away. That sounds like a good ending for it. But in fact, even some of those methods can be really harmful to these animals. So we really need to scientifically define what is humane for each individual species. And what is the process of doing that? I mean, this is a conversation I actually had with someone on something completely unrelated a few weeks ago was like, if we want to understand this, we like the best way to do it would be to ask the animal, but we are incapable of doing that directly. So how do we determine what is humane for a raccoon or what is humane for a, you know, a little field mouse? That's a great question. So animal welfare science has given us a suite of tools to do that with. We wish we could speak to the animals themselves, but we know from an animal's natural history what it needs to thrive. And then we also know from different sciences like physiology, neurobiology, what causes an animal to suffer and what their capacity for suffering is. So a lot of these animals were once labeled pests. And for some reason, they were treated with kind of lower regard than many of the other animals that we hold as uh, valuable species. So the pest species tended to be treated poorly and killed or harmed in ways that we would never allow our cats and dogs to be treated. So this is one of the reasons why we set out to define what is humane for all of these species and then what is actually practical to, in order to be able to ensure the health and safety of people as well. We recognize that, you know, no one has to live with raccoons in their attics, um, you know, but these raccoons, we can get them out safely on their own without having to trap and relocate them kilometers and kilometers away from their own natural habitat and that way we can reunite families of raccoons or squirrels or possums or any other animal that seems to get caught up in our urban setting. What does the accreditation program look like? Um, this is something I'm not familiar with in regards to animal welfare or animal rights. How does a company sort of decide, well, we want to be the good guys, so BCSPCA, we're the good guys now, give us a thumbs up. What, what's the actual I mean, that, that's the little fake version of it in my head. What's the real way that a company goes about this? What's the, the entire process? Absolutely. So it is an extensive process. So we developed the standards. The animal kind standards were based on these three years of deep literature review and external consultations with industry, with academics. And so we have a set of standards that are publicly available. They're on our website. We are a very transparent program. And so anyone can look them up and say, okay, I, you know, I, I, can, I think I can meet these standards. And then they would apply to the program and actually then go through an auditing process. So some accreditation or certification programs, they don't have publicly available standards. They don't actually give any information about how they vet companies, how they give them that stamp of approval. So there is a lot of humane washing out there. We know that labels are applied to different things, and the validation of those are, are sometimes just a list of recommendations. They're not actually companies that have been vetted. They're just someone that they recommend. And so in this case, we didn't want to take that approach. We wanted to ensure that we can stand behind the companies we accredit. We audit them annually. And we actually would use them. That's one of the reasons we started this. We, we need wildlife control services on some of our properties. We have 46 locations in the province, and we needed to address this internally. And so we needed to walk the walk and say, what would we do in these situations? And what companies would we use? What companies would we tell our friends to use and our supporters? And that was one of the biggest you know, impetuses for, for this program. We have to be able to provide the members of the public with options and then clarify which of these we would actually use ourselves. 
I really like that idea. It's it's not just sort of a lofty ideal. It is a very practical uh, set of standards, and they're they're available online for anyone, which I think also helps hold the companies to account. Um, if people can see this is what's expected of them, uh, but Absolutely. also that also as the SPCA will use these companies, will refer to them. I think is very very important. Um, as that's something that can get very confusing when you're looking for a company uh, who can help with these services. If you just typed in a search online right now, you would come up with humane pest control, humane wildlife control, and 10 different companies would pop up with that language in the name of their company name or within their advertisements. So again, you're not actually being able to discern what that means. Do they use blue traps? Do they use drowning traps for beavers? What are they actually doing? And and they're not going to explain that type of information on, on the website and you're going to call them out um, and they say they're going to solve their problems. And there are a lot of actually really good pest control operators out there, professionals that are there to help you. But at the same time, if they're not being externally vetted, I think that there is sometimes some, some room for problems for this, these animals. It's also interesting to note that there are a lot of um, traps that are under a trade agreement called the Agreement on International Humane Trapping Standards called humane. And one thing I've seen is people hear humane trap and they expect like the cage traps that you use for cats because in their mind, that's a humane trap. But a humane trap includes leg holds and conibears and all sorts of other horrific devices. Again, that word humane means what it means to you. That's, mm -hmm. that's it. It means something different legally. It means something different as a society. We did actually a marketing study at British Columbians and asked them what they thought humane meant. And a lot of them said, you know, what means a quick death? Others said it means non-lethal. Some said it doesn't mean poisons, you know. So there was a lot of confusion. And so, again, I think that's one of the reasons why we've branded the program as Animal Kind, um, specifically because we have tried to avoid the confusion of the word term humane because it is just, it's overused and it's misused by many companies to mislead potentially their customers. And I think that there are some really good companies out there, and we want to distinguish them. We want to send business to them, we want to promote them, and we want the bad apples to go away. Something that comes up on the website is the discussion of lethal versus non-lethal. Non-lethal options, which you list as prevention and exclusion methods, are always the first choice. And I think that's pretty logical because it keeps the animal out rather than finding some way to sort of force them out. When we're talking, though, about... Uh, I think in particular smaller uh, animals, such as rats and mice, uh, again, with raccoons, skunks, squirrels, beavers, and birds, and I'd also say bats probably, it, it's easier to envision for me how to safely remove those animals. And they will just go on and find somewhere else to be so long as they can't get back in. But when we're talking about these smaller animals, the ones that are still commonly referred to as pests, such as rats and mice, I guess I have sort of a, a two-part question here. The first is the practical how can we manage exclusions and prevention with such small animals? Let's start there. That's a great question. And you know what, Michael? I actually had my own experience last fall. I, I live in um, you know, an older wooden structure um, building, and I have lived here for 10 years and never had a rodent issue until last year. Uh, a mouse moved in. And I thought, okay, I can do this. I can um, you know, humanely trap and remove and take him down the road and, and release him. And I did. But then the next day, I had two. And I kept going like this for a couple of weeks, and I was finally able to find the holes where they were coming in and remove all the mice humanely and let them live out their lives and, and in the forest here. So that was possible, but not everybody has, you know, the ability to find those holes. I was lucky enough to be able to locate them. 
the challenge is, is that every workplace, so every school, every hospital, every office tower, they actually employ pest control companies because of basic human health and safety regulations. So you can't have in food and restaurant locations, of course, um, any type of rodents because that will damage the products that would condemn a restaurant. So there are basic minimum laws that say you can't have rodents in these areas. So there is a need to ensure that, you know, maybe in a home that you can remove them um, with patients, but um, in other areas where their human health and safety is, is a real risk and concern, there may be a need for some lethal measures. But there's no sense in killing animals if you're not going to fix the problem. So in my case, I had to find the holes where the animals were coming in. Um, and that has to be done on a larger scale. And that takes time. And that takes companies who are, are willing to, to find the ultimate solution rather than just come back every month and put out bait and, you know, very passively kill animals through poison. So actually having a plan to finish the job rather than constant maintenance is, is also part of the program. It's a great example, I think. Um, again, you know, I've, I've had a squirrel in my basement here in Hamilton. Uh, I was informed of the fact that there was a squirrel in the basement by my dogs, um, who got a little excited by that fact. You know, I was able to use a, uh elaborate system of dog leashes, a crate, and a GoPro camera viewed remotely to get them out safely. But I often see pest control companies around. And, you know, living in apartment buildings a lot, they are very common, especially when we're dealing with bugs. But... I think one of the reasons this and I, the reason I'm kind of struggling with the question is because there is a an ethical question attached to it. And I think you touched on that a bit. You know, when, when especially when we're dealing with with I think schools, hospitals, restaurants, things like that, we know as much as we may love these little critters, they can carry disease and that for health and safety standards, we can't have them in these locations. How do we have that ethical conversation where we're not, you know, allowing speciesism to just bulldozer any conversation and say, oh, well, we got to get rid of the mice and rats. But at the same time, recognize that we do have to have some of these standards and that health, like it's a very real risk to health if we don't in some way, at least manage this. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, that's a, a giant bundled mess I have just thrown at you. And now I'm going to let you answer. No, that's a great question. And, you know, it took a lot of reflection from our organization. We actually adopt out mice and rats. You know, we have relationships with them as pet owners, right? So it's not about speciesism. It is about controlling, you know, non-lethally. The first step is always prevention, exclusion, making sure there isn't a need to kill animals in the first place is where you start. Unfortunately, there are some parts of the community, and sadly, these are often very impoverished um, areas that can be infested with mice and rats. And it's very, very challenging for people who are below the poverty line um, to deal with these situations. And, and you know, when they're, they're daily, we've seen it on the downtown east side, you know, there are buildings that are infested with rodents. And it is unfair to say that these people have to live in these conditions because they, um, you know, shouldn't kill um, a, an animal that actually could give them a disease. So that's a really challenging question. Um, but I think it also comes from um, sometimes a place of privilege to be able to say, well, I wouldn't do that. But we don't always know what the situations that some people are living in. And I think, again, there are a lot of concerns with health and safety. These these animals are carrying diseases. The Vancouver Rat Project has found, you know, the, the types of disease, uh, a whole suite of diseases that can be transmitted from people, to, uh, from rats to people. 
um, through studying rats on the downtown east side. So I think, again, you know, there are a lot of compounding factors here. And, and I'd love to be able to say we can just let nature take its course and let all the owls take care of the mice and let all the coyotes here take care of the rats because that's what should happen. You know, that is the natural cycle. Um, but in some of these cases, these animals are in buildings and natural cycles are not going to happen. They are going to get out of control and they are going to harm people. And that's, that's just reality. And so that's where, you, you know, again, individuals can make choices about what they would do in their own homes or, or their own, um, you know, workplace. And that's why we're, we're giving people choices. We're letting them know which companies are, are going to work with you on that. Um, but in some rare cases, you may have to take legal measures. There are two elements here that are discussed on the frequently asked questions that I think are both very valid and important. Um, one to me is very obvious and the other one, and I think the the response on the FAQ indicates is not as clear. Uh, we'll, we'll go in reverse order from how they're printed. The first is glue boards and the second is rodent sides. Um, so how do we, how are these used and in what way does animal kind affect their use for companies? Absolutely. So rodenticides, unfortunately, are used widespread. They're legal. People can buy them off the shelves at uh, their local hardware store. You know, we would like to see rodenticides only used by professionals, not by homeowners, and only under specific and strict conditions. So these are, again, legal substances that Health Canada approves. And actually, Health Canada does has a much stricter criteria than even in the U.S. There are a lot of products that companies can't get in Canada that they could if they were operating in the U.S. So we know that rodenticides, unfortunately, there are second-generation products that even, you know, we, we know are not uh, a good death for animals. Um, but they are still used on a kind of limited basis. Um, but again, if we can avoid use of them, and that's why companies, some companies have taken the stance that they don't use any. Um, so that's something that we would promote within the program. But they are commonly used and we want to start to limit their use over time so that eventually we can get to a place where we don't need them at all. And also science needs to get better and catch up with um, using means of, of chemicals that are better targeted to specific animals because we know rodenticides are having an effect up the food chain. So we prefer to see them not used at all. You know, mice and rats, unfortunately, if they are killed and then they're left out, an owl could eat them. So that's where we'd like to see, a, you know, again, more work done in this area, more science in this area to reduce any of that potential. And glue boards. I think those are ones that most of our listeners are going to be pretty familiar with and why they're not positive. Are they actually used by pest control companies? Unfortunately, Glue boards are widespreadly used by pest control companies and homeowners. Again, they're sold off the shelves at any hardware store. But I don't think most people recognize that glue boards were never designed to actually kill animals. But people leave animals on them and they end up dying a horrible death. So glue boards were designed to capture an animal and then the animal should be removed off of it. Um, this is not the case. And in fact, many of these glue substances cause so much harm that the animals you know, hurting, ripping off skin or even limbs. So we absolutely would never use glue boards in any of our facilities. And we should, we've said that members of the, of the public should never use them. The only exception in the animal kind program is because um, certain things are, are not allowed in food manufacturing facilities, that um, glue boards are only allowed in those types of facilities. So um, that is the legal standard right now. And only pet professional pest control companies should be ever using those in those facilities and, and monitoring them constantly. 
I think the Animal Kind program is is something that's very important. I think you you folks have done an absolutely wonderful job developing it. My final question is more of an ethical one again, because I feel that as someone who has been exposed to some of this stuff, talking with with groups like uh, AAA Wildlife Control, um, who are very very professional and humane. Uh, I know there are a lot of solutions out there to do this in a humane way. The question I think that folks struggle with and what I see uh, anecdotally when I'm reading things online is when should intervention take place? When does it go from me trying to use a humane Acme style device in my basement to then release a squirrel um, or, you know, leaving the window open and hoping an animal moves along? to I need someone to come and help and I need to make sure that this is done as humanely as possible. Absolutely. So some homeowners are comfortable trying, you know, initial steps on their own. Um, I think any time that there is potentially a fire hazard risk, you know, you do have animals that could potentially be eating at wires in your, in your home. That That's really when you need professionals to come in. Um, the longer you let it go, the more potential for those animals to have young over time. So you, you don't want to just wait for there to be multiple signs of these animals. You do want to try to address it early. And I think, again, you know, we're very lucky to have AAA Wildlife in British Columbia be the first company that has been accredited by Animal Kind. Um, and they've led the way in showing, you know, what is the best way for these animals to be treated. We're taking, you know, we're raising the bar on, on humane pest control here. And I think that homeowners, again, don't want to unnecessarily harm animals, but they don't want to have to live with them in their homes either. So there is a balance, and that's what Animal Kind is about, finding the right company that will get you there when you're ready to call them. To learn more about Animal Kind, visit animalkind.ca. That's the show for this week, folks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember, you can support the show and get bonus features and more at patreon.com slash Defender Radio. You can also sign up for weekly updates at thefurbears.com slash updates. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.